Will you pray with me? Oh God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So this morning I want to invite us to begin with some reflection. I want you to think in your own mind of someone in your life who has modeled for you a pattern of financial giving that you now follow. So another way to ask this question, right, is from whom have you learned your patterns of giving? So I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Think about, well, not a couple minutes. All right, a couple seconds. Think about that. From whom have you learned your patterns of giving? Once you have that, that memory or that person in your head, I want to invite you to turn to someone that you're sitting beside. And you might have to scoot over if you're not sitting too close to anybody and just tell one person um, very briefly, who did you learn your patterns of giving from? So as we come back together, I certainly think of my parents when I think of who did I learn my patterns of giving from. But another person that comes to my own mind is my college campus minister. Um, our Wesley Foundation was funded through a mixture of money from conference apportionments and also individual donations. And as seniors graduated from our campus ministry, our um, pastor challenged us to begin giving back to the Wesley Foundation $25 a month. And he challenged us as a way to say, you all have received much through this campus ministry. And as you go out to hopefully get jobs, right? That's what you're supposed to do when you graduate from college. As you go out and hopefully get a job and earn some money, we want to invite you to give back to this ministry. And I remember at that time, $25 a month seemed like a lot to me. I mean, it meant that by the end of the year, I would have given away $600, which felt like a huge amount as someone who was just graduating from college and figuring out life, right? Um, I remember, though, that I took that challenge from my campus minister because I loved my experience in college that my Wesley Foundation had given to me. And I wanted to make that possible for other students. One of our bishops, Robert Schneezy, has written um, about uh, cultivating fruitfulness in congregations. And he um, has one practice that he calls extravagant generosity. And he talks about how um, whatever we experience as a positive formation of faith, it all stems back to someone's generosity. And I want to read to you an excerpt from his book. He writes, every sanctuary and chapel in which we have worshipped, every church organ that has lifted our spirits, every pew where we have sat, every communion rail where we have knelt, every hymnal from which we have sung, every praise band that has touched our hearts, every church classroom where we have gathered with our friends, every church kitchen where our meals were prepared, Every church van that has taken us to camp and every church camp we have ever attended, all are the fruit of someone's 
extravagant generosity. He goes on to say, we have been the recipients of grace upon grace. We are the heirs, the beneficiaries of those who came before us who were touched by the generosity of Christ enough to give graciously so that we could experience the truth of Christ for ourselves. And we owe the same to generations to come. So at this point, you might be wondering, like, this is nice, Pastor Jill, but it's not a November stewardship series. What does this have to do with Lent? All right, so let's rewind a little bit and talk about what is Lent. Lent is that season of 40-day preparation for Easter. It begins on Ash Wednesday, which we celebrated this last Wednesday. Now, if you count the days on a calendar, you're going to come up with 46 days because of the Sundays, but we actually don't count the Sundays during Lent. The Sundays are considered many feast days, and so they're exceptions to our Lenten practice. So you end up with 46 days, 40 weekdays, and 6 Sundays. And Lent is often and traditionally understood as a somber time. A time for fasting, for repentance, for penitence, for inward self-reflection and introspection. And this is true. The, the season of Lent is, is for this purpose. It's a time when we do remember that we are merely mortal, that we will all one day die, and that we make mistakes. It is during this season that we devote ourselves to acts of piety or holiness and acts of fasting. We do this to remember the way that Jesus was sent out into the wilderness for the 40 days in the desert while he was being tempted and when he fasted and prayed. And yet Max Vincent pushes us to ask ourselves some different questions. He wrote a book called Because of This, I Rejoice, which reflects on the book of Philippians during Lent. And we also are going to be reading all throughout Philippians during this Lenten season. But Max Vincent writes, Lent may sound like a Christian self-improvement season. Do we focus on ourselves too much during Lent? Have we lost sight of how our Lenten practices are meant to draw us closer to God? Is our lack of focus on God depriving us of Lenten joy? Because though it is true that Lent is certainly a time of introspection and self-examination, a time for learning Christian practices, Lent is also a time for leaning into the love of God and for drawing near to God's warm and loving embrace. You know, I think this Lent is perhaps um, unique in that we begin this journey immediately following General Conference 2019. And I don't know about you, but now more than ever, I need to be held close in the warm and loving embrace of God. And I think our congregation needs to be held close in the warm and loving embrace of God. In the book of Philippians, Paul uses the word joy over and over and over. He uses it more than any other book, uh, any other of his letters. And as we go through Lent, reading these passages from Philippians, I think that you will see that theme emerging over and over. And yet, it's not that Philippians is like a step-by-step -step guide on how to be more joyful. Rather, Paul is, is giving us a challenge. 
He's not saying that if you just pray more or you just give more or you just deny yourself more, then you'll find joy. No, he's actually saying that we can practice these devotional acts joyfully rather than hoping that they will bring us joy. Max Vincent says it this way, something at the heart of Christian living makes these disciplines not drudgery, but rather joyful expressions of the life of faith. That something is the gospel, which transforms even the cross, even the cross, into a symbol of triumph. This same gospel conforms us to the life of Christ, and because of this, we too rejoice. So each week you should have, when you came in today, you should have received a bookmark that has some Lenten practices on it. And each week during Lent, we're going to be highlighting a different practice. But you're invited to begin trying all of these, even this week. Some of you um, may have already selected something to give up or something to add to your daily routine. And as you engage in those practices, the invitation is to do so with joy. But if you haven't yet thought about it too much, or if you're willing to do what you had selected, and also these practices, I want to invite you to take this challenge. And our first spiritual practice is giving. Now, giving is not a spiritual practice that's limited to, to Christianity. The passage that Ted read for us today from the Rig Veda reminds us that in the Hindu tradition, the one who gives liberally goes straight to the gods. But likewise, in our Jewish uh, tradition, our Jewish brothers and sisters, they also join Christians in placing a high value in giving. And that is because we all believe in a God who first gives to us an extravagant love and grace. And so we begin this series by reading the very last part of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. What is interesting is that most scholars agree that Paul writes this letter with the purpose of giving thanks for a financial gift the Philippians have given to him, but he doesn't directly thank them, and he doesn't even get around to mentioning the gift until the very end, chapter 4 of the letter. Now, I have to say, perhaps Paul needs a few lessons on um, best practices in modern-day fundraising, right? Because this isn't what we're taught Think first, right? Think first. Don't wait till the end. But finally, at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul starts to get there, and he invites the Philippians to stop fighting and to find a way toward Christian unity. All throughout the letter, Paul has been reminding the Philippians and us to do two things when fears and anxiety consume us. The first is to pray. And he says to pray in thanksgiving, because in this way, the peace of God will stand guard over our thoughts. And then he says to meditate on things that are worthy of praise. And by doing this, our hearts will turn toward the joyful desire to share with others the resources that God has entrusted to us. Now, there are a couple different theories about why Paul waits so long in the letter to, to uh, thank the Philippians for the gift, even indirectly. There's a Bible scholar named Gerald Peterman who argues that Paul is following an ancient letter-writing practice. 
And that is this, um, this practice of expressing direct gratitude among intimate friends was considered to be unnecessary. And so instead, the recipient of the gift um, often reported the way that the gift had been used. And when you look at it through this lens, Paul has in fact been doing this the entire letter. He's been talking to them about how their gift has furthered the gospel, and this is indeed what they are investing in. Because he's giving them, in a way, a report on their investment. And their investment is not in Paul, but rather in the spreading of the gospel. There's another scholar, David Briones, who believes that, that Paul doesn't directly express thanks because he believes it's a three-way relationship between God, the giver, and the recipient. That, that giving is this kind of three-way three triangle. And that in this case, the, the giving is between God, Paul, and the Philippians. And so it is actually God who gives the gifts. And the Philippians steward God's resources, so their benevolence is fruit of Christian joy. It is that joy produces generous givers who give in thanksgiving for what God has done and is doing in the world. And so whatever the reason that is that Paul holds off mentioning the gift until the end, he finally gets to it in this part that we read this morning. Starting with verse 10 in chapter 4, he writes, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I'm referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty, and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. So, so in this passage, Paul is emphasizing that, that he appreciates their concern for him. And that it indeed was kind for them to share in his distress by giving a gift. And yet he also acknowledges that he doesn't need their gift. That he has found a way to be content no matter what. If he has a lot, if he has a little, if he has nothing, he will be content. But there's something interesting to me about his words because it's almost as if he's taking care to say that he's not embarrassed to receive their gift. But rather he's joyful. Because by receiving their gift, it has given them the opportunity to give. I think about that as kind of an ironic twist in the way that we might feel when we receive a financial gift from someone else. Because I think so many times there's a sense of reluctance to receive the gift, maybe even embarrassment, or a feeling that, that a debt of what we now owe someone else is accumulating. And if only we could experience the receiving of a gift in a way that Paul did, by thanking God that our own hardship, our own situation, has given someone else the opportunity to be generous. Paul goes on to write in verses 15 and 16, You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me and the matter of giving and receiving, except you alone. 
For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. So these next few verses indicate that the church in Philippi has a history of being generous, particularly being generous with Paul and financially supporting his work of spreading the gospel. And so it makes me wonder if perhaps the charism of giving joyfully is a special gift that the church in Philippi indeed has. Paul goes on to write in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. And so here Paul is circling back to that idea that it isn't him who needs the gift. He's already learned how to be content no matter what. But rather he says there is something that actually happens in those who are giving that brings them a profit in their lives on account of their giving. And then those final verses, 18 through 20, where Paul writes, I have been paid in full, and I have more than enough. I am fully satisfied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will satisfy every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in this section, Paul speaks of their gifts as a fragrant offering that flows up to God. I think this reinforces the idea that they're giving the gift to God and to the work of the gospel and that Paul just happens to be the vessel that receives the gift. You know, I like this image of the gifts as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and it brings me back to a memory of my childhood. I remember one of our pastors in particular had a very ceremonial way of receiving the offering plates. And she would receive the offering plates, and then she would turn and walk toward the altar table. She would lift them up high. She would lay them down on the altar table in such, such a careful and elegant way. And then she would pray that prayer of blessing over the gifts that had been given. And in my childhood mind, the whole time, what I was thinking is, I wonder how those money get up to God. Like, what happens after Sunday? Do they just poof, magically go up in the air? I couldn't quite figure it out. But now, right from from my adult vantage point, I understand that in a different way. The gifts that were being given to that local church... They were indeed a fragrant offering to God, and they were being given to the vessel of that local church for the work of ministry in that community. I think I've shared with you all before that my husband, Chali, and I are committed to tithing. And in part, this is indeed because of what we have learned from our parents, that that we calculate and we give 10% of what we earn to whatever local church that we are part of in any given season of our lives. There are other ministries and schools and nonprofits that we care about and that we support as well, but we believe in making that tithe to God and also to the work of the gospel. And we think of that local church that we are participating in as the vessel that receives that gift. So giving joyfully for us, it is a way to respond to God's grace at work in us. 
and to join God in, in the work in this local community of faith, in this local Wichita, the city of Wichita, in, in the world, in the work that God is doing in the world. One of the things that Max Vincent lifts up in his book is that during Lent, he tries to focus less on what he's giving up and more on what he's, he's adding. And he gives some example of, of, say, by giving up coffee or giving up chocolate, he saves the money that he would have spent on it, and then he gives it to a mission or a church ministry to support God's work in the world. And so the first invitation that we have for you today in reversing this somber reputation of Lent is to engage in some joyful giving. And at this point, my friends, that I want to acknowledge that I know many are very hurt by the decision that was made at General Conference last week. And I know many of us are looking for ways to actively resist our denomination's stand. And I join you in that hurt. I join you in that desire to actively resist. And yet what I want to invite you to remember is that the money that you give to CHUM first and foremost supports our mission and ministry at the local level. Our children's ministry, our youth ministry, our amazing music ministry, our outreach opportunities, our staff members, our building, our local initiatives. We will continue to fulfill our mission at CHUM as a reconciling congregation. And we will continue as well to engage and work for change within our denomination. And so in the midst of that, I want to invite you to, to consider this Lenten challenge, a call to joyful giving to Chum, so that our witness in this Wichita community and within our denomination remains strong and vital. And so there are two things that I have put before you on, on that bookmark this morning, and they'll also appear up here on the screen. One challenge would be to take some time calculating your gift and what it would mean to in increase your gift to CHUM by 2% during this Lenten season. Another option would be to sign up to make a recurring electronic gift to CHUM. You know, I think we're all probably guilty of like, if we give on a weekly basis or a monthly basis and we were gone on the Sunday that we normally give, sometimes we just honestly forget. And there are electronic tools to help us with that. And so you might take a, a minute to, to consider that as well. To check out, we have a way to do this through our website, collegehillumc.org donations. You can sign up there to make a recurring gift to CHUM. Another alternative that doesn't incur any fees to the church is by contacting your bank and setting up an online bill pay, just like you might pay any other bills um, through your banking institution. You can set it up to where you choose the amount, and that amount comes to CHUM each and every week. And so we have a, a, a family among us who accepted this challenge a week early, and we are going to um, just one moment uh, hear a brief video of their story. So we're getting ready to try out some joyful giving during Lent. And I am getting ready to take a look at our budget to see if we can increase our giving to Chum by 2%. Here I go. 
Here she is, working on the budget. Woohoo! Hi again. So we took a look at our budget, and as it turns out, 2% seems very manageable. And we've got our check written for tomorrow's offering, and we are excited to give joyfully to Chum during the Lenten season and hopefully continue that giving. Um, we love you, Chum. My friends, um, I put that challenge before you. I believe in our mission here at CHUM to be a progressive Christian community that is wise in the ways of the Spirit, bold in the ways of justice, and graceful in relationship to all of creation. And I believe in our commitment to do that as a reconciling congregation in ministry with people of all sexual orientations and gender identity. And so we also, uh, in my family, are committing to join Matthew and Katie in increasing our gift to CHOM by 2% during Lent. And I want to invite you to join us, either in that challenge or in taking that challenge to sign up for electronic giving, either through our website or through your bank. Let us join together in giving joyfully to CHOM this Lent. Let us pray. Most gracious God, teach us to be generous and joyful in our giving always. Strengthen and bless our congregation so that we may discover your presence anew and change the lives of the people you call us to serve. We pray these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.